Christians can do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. That's what we're going to see today as we continue in this third section of the Sermon on the Mount. The greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest teacher who ever lived. I pray we're doing justice to it. First section was kingdom people. We looked at the Beatitudes and we saw the transformation the gospel would bring about in this new culture of people. And as a result, they're blessed. But not only are they blessed, they bless the world. They are salt and light to the world around them. And then we spent several weeks in some tough passages as we talked about kingdom morality, Jesus comparing pharisaical, religious righteousness versus heart righteousness. And then that segment ended with that hyperbolic statement. So be perfect as your heavenly Father's perfect. And we can only do that because of the gospel. It's not man's righteousness, but the gospel makes us righteous, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And out of that perfect moral standing with God, then we can live godly lives out of a heart that hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Last week, Lou started us on our third section and we're calling this section Kingdom Living. And it's really about spiritual habits, sacred rhythms that allow us to pursue him, to live a life that honors him, but also be used by him for his purposes in bringing about the kingdom. The section we're looking at deals with three spiritual disciplines, or what Jesus refers to as acts of righteousness that were common in first century Judaism, generosity, giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting. Today, we're gonna deal with prayer. Last week, Lou dealt with generosity. We're gonna deal with prayer, and I'm gonna invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter six. Matthew chapter six, and we're gonna read from verse one all the way to 18, because there is a a thread that ties all of these together. There's a common way that Jesus addresses these three spiritual disciplines in the same way he does for the previous movement. So for instance, what was the common uh, verbal thread in the Beatitudes? Blessed are for they, right? What was the common thread that we saw in kingdom morality? You have heard it said, but I say to you. And in the same way, there's a, there's a common way that Jesus addresses these three spiritual disciplines that really is the key to interpreting this particular uh, movement. So let's begin reading and see if you can pick up the thread. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues or on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. 
But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. And when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. If you take this passage as a whole, you see that Jesus is articulating each of these acts of righteousness through a particular lens. In fact, he gives us the interpretive key to this passage right in verse one, when he says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward for your Father in heaven. This is the key to this whole section. We can do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. We're either practicing religious piety for the approval of others or for the approval of our Heavenly Father. It's one or the other. Now, that's very hard because I'll admit I'm conflicted. We're human beings. We have feet of clay. We, we still struggle with old habits of the heart. I've learned that we are a mixed bag of intentions. If you have ever said to somebody, I did this only with the best of intentions, how many have ever used that phrase? Liars. <laughs> we never do anything for just the best of intentions. Because we have so many needs that are deeper than what you and I consciously think of, we're driven by all sorts of intentions. I've shared this story before, but it's worth repeating. Several years ago, I was at one of these uh, types of conferences where you build trust with the people that are with you, and then that allows you to try some activities that stir up emotions and let you look at those emotions and learn something about yourself. And uh, at one part in this four-day conference, we were several days in, the leader of the conference said, now, what I'd like you to do is pick out someone in the crowd here that you've been watching and you have some observations you'd like to make in their life. Not necessarily criticisms, think of them as feedback. You don't have to be right, it's just an impression you're getting. And then I want you to line up behind that person. 
And then the person that was supposed to receive the feedback was supposed to turn and stand open position and just receive what they had to say. Well, I had one particular guy I was really interested in giving some feedback to. (laughs) And there were a lot of people in line for him. But I got in line with him. And the opportunity came, and I just uh, tried to humbly share with him what I was experiencing. And then I walked away and realized part of the line walked away with me. I had a line. Actually, I had one woman. And I walked a little farther just to make sure that there was. Yeah, yeah, she's here for me. So I turned around. You need to understand, at this period in time, I was still leading a regional worship ministry. I, was, I had been on um, some large platforms for worship uh, in Boston and the like. And uh, so this is how this woman knew me. And so um, I turned and faced her, and she said, and she was very broken about it. She said, I've, I've been in uh, several settings where you've led worship, and all I ever receive from you is arrogance. I said, okay, thank you. I thought about that a long time. Now, immediately I want to go, well, the woman doesn't know my heart, or I remind her of some ex-husband or something, you know. (laughs) Some old boyfriend, some boss. Couldn't be me. I love the Lord. When I worship God, I love to worship. I love to worship with people. My heart cries out for God. I have the best of intentions when I worship. (laughs) Here's how God used that. Whether she's right or wrong about her impression, whether it's coming from a brokenness in her or something in me, here's the truth. Are there times when I stand up and have led worship in the past where I've definitely wanted people to fall in love with Christ as we worship him, but at the same time in the back of my mind I'm thinking, I hope they realize how good I sound today. Yeah. But please don't point any fingers. And don't don't point fingers at, at the Pharisees. All of us can do the right things for the wrong reasons. All of us often do because we are a mixed bag of intentions. We have needs in our life that draw us to seek affirmation from other sources than God himself. And part of the journey of transformation is to be able to have God put those things aside. And God used that situation, that honest feedback from that woman, not for me to defend myself, not for me to evaluate whether she's right or wrong, but as a mirror for me to look at my heart and to put that to death, you know, put that to death, and to continue to put that to death in my life. But that's the battle that Jesus is talking about here. We can do things for man's acclaim. And when we do that, we get our reward in full. Notice he says that in all three situations he talks about. We get the reward we're looking for, but that's the only reward we get. So we either do our religious activities for the approval of people, or we do them for our Father in heaven. And that's the critical difference. 
The Pharisees were doing their spiritual discipline as a way of achieving right standing before God. What Jesus is teaching, and we've come back to it over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is teaching is that no act of righteousness, no spiritual discipline, no obedience to the law can ever achieve righteousness. All of that flows out of an intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father, and that is the key to this whole thing. So let me share um, about those three spiritual practices just in general. The first, I've said several times, we can and often do the right thing spiritually, but for the wrong reasons. Secondly, when we look at this overall section, we see that authentic spirituality doesn't seek the approval of other people. Instead, it flows from an intimate relationship with our Father. Now, Religion is formal and ritual. True Christianity is family and relationship. Ask yourself, is that your relationship with God? That I'm in relationship with Abba Daddy. Look at this verse from 1 John chapter 3 and let's say it together. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. Turn to the person next to you and say, that is what we are. If you've come to Christ as your Savior, God has lavished his love on you and you're his child. And so when we go about our sacred rhythms, our spiritual habits, we do it because we love him. So if, if I have the, the love of God, if I have the affirmation, the blessing of God, what approval of man do I require? That's the key to this whole section. And this week we're gonna look at it uh, in the context of the discipline, the spiritual rhythm of prayer. Now, we spent 10 weeks this last winter studying the Lord's Prayer. So we're really gonna focus on the first section uh, of this, where we see both how not to pray, but also what it means to pray authentically. So let's look at verse five. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogue and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your father who is unseen, then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. There are three types of prayer that Jesus talks about here that are how not to pray. The first is prayer in the synagogue. And he's talking about the common practice where a man would stand up in front of the ark of the law and would pray to God on behalf of the congregation. And people had developed a, a real gift for theater in those prayers. The right cliches, the right fervency, praying all the right things, but their heart was seeking the approval of man, praying for show. How many have done that? Yeah. Yeah, of course we do. We're seeking God, but we're also thinking, man, I, this is really good. This is, <laughs> wow. So before we get upset with the Pharisees, let's remind ourselves that we all are by nature Pharisees. We all are performance driven. And when we go about these things, we're putting on a show. 
before we led worship today, we prayed, God, let this just be for your honor and glory. Let us put aside any goal that we would uh, receive anything except affirmation from you as, as our Father. And I, I feel like the team really led us that way today. Led us beautifully and humbly in God's presence. But the temptation for all of us in whatever setting, life group or, or any time we pray, uh, to pray that way. The second is on the street. Now, every day there was an afternoon sacrifice at the Temple Mountain in Jerusalem. And when that happened, the shofar would blow and it would sound across the whole valley. So wherever you were on the street, you'd hear the horn and you'd pray. And of course, there were those who used that as an opportunity for reputation. <laughs> Nowadays, we tend to not be very public about our faith in Christ as it was here. It was socially acceptable, more like Uganda. There was this cosmetic store that said, for the glory of Christ, cosmetics. I took a picture of it. It's good business over there. It's not good business here. So we're less inclined to be public about our religious practices in our prayer, but when we do, let's do it for God's glory, not for man's reputation. Then the third thing he talks about is praying like the pagans. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. The way pagans prayed was superstitiously. Two common aspects to this. One, they would, in their prayers, go through a lengthy list of various deities, hoping that they'd hit one that would answer their prayer. And then the other thing was that pagans, like, like today, like actually exists in forms of Christianity, had repetitive prayers, incantations, certain ways of invoking their deity in terms of accomplishing what they want. In other words, through much repetition. Today, it's interesting that segments of the church have turned the very Lord's Prayer into vain repetition. Uh, not that it's not worth repeating and saying, but it's a model for prayer, which is a model for our life as citizens of the kingdom of God. We have incantations. I pray in the mighty name of Jesus. There, that ought to work. We just have to get the right cliches and we pull God's strings. Jesus says, no, your heavenly father already knows what you need before you ask. But yet we're supposed to ask. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us as we forgive. Lead us not to temptation. Deliver us from evil. We're supposed to ask. So why do we ask if God already knows? We ask because he wants us to ask. We ask because it reminds us that we only have because he gives generously. It's an act of dependency to ask the Father. He knows what you need. He just wants to make sure that we know that he's the one who provides. How interesting that 2,000 years later we struggle with these very same things. So what does it mean then to pray out of a right heart, praying to our Father. I just want to highlight the things that we see that the Lord's Prayer teaches us in general about praying to our Heavenly Father. First of all, prayer is about family, not formality. One of the most radical things about this section of Scripture is Jesus referring to God as our Father. Eight times in these verses, Jesus refers to God 
as our Father. That was radical, that was the big difference. Jewish prayer was based on the Old Testament idea that God is behind a veil, that he wants to have relationship with us, but our sin keeps us from being too close. The name of God can't be really spoken. Now Jesus says, no, in my kingdom, in my kingdom, there's no fear. We come into that very holy place boldly because we've been sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus. And now the one whose name could not even be uttered by the people of the Old Testament, we call Daddy. I love that. Prayer is about family, not formality. Second, prayer is affirmation of God's priorities and promises for his children. It's not about coming to God to get him to give. Prayer is about aligning ourselves with God's purposes and priorities. What did we learn from the Lord's Prayer? Prayer is relationship, our Father in heaven, right? Prayer is commitment. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Prayer is dependence on God. Give us, forgive us, lead us, deliver us. And prayer is surrender to God's priorities. Yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. And then finally, prayer is agreement with God's purposes. That's why we say amen. Amen means I'm in. I want what you want. So prayer at its heart is an affirmation of God's priorities and promises for us as his children. And then finally, when our motivation is right, our first thought in prayer is about God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will, not our name, our possessions, and our wants. You see, when we're in relationship with the Heavenly Father who has lavished his love on us, from whom we receive all the affirmation we will ever need, every aspect of our longing for meaning and purpose and value comes from the unconditional love that is lavished on us through our Heavenly Father. When you get that right, your needs are secondary to God's glory to God's kingdom, to God's power. And that's why Jesus is the very first thing you pray. Very first thing. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How's your prayer life? Are you still, even since our, our prayer series, coming to God only with the needs, only with the lists, you're missing the point. Abba wants to be with you and he wants you to come to him as his child and he wants you to want what he wants for you and for the world around you. And ultimately, what that is about are these three words. And we've said them a lot this last year. Your kingdom come. Ultimately, all prayer has at its heart a cry for God's kingdom, his reign, his beneficent reign and grace to be at work completely in my life, but also for his kingdom to come to our city and to our world. I want to turn with you to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul says, by the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid, when face to face with you, but bold toward you when away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be 
towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. Now, this is what I want you to focus on. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, our weapons have divine power to demolish strongholds. So, We've talked a lot about the kingdom. We've talked about the fact that based on the proclamation that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, based on the gospel, the church has the keys to the kingdom. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. So the job of the church is to advance the kingdom of God, not just to survive until the rapture. We're not a rapture religion. We're not spiritual survivalists. We are a movement of God to bring down strongholds on this earth, and prayer is a cry for the kingdom of God. It's a prayer for those strongholds to be demolished and for God to come and reign, for his name to be honored and for his will to be done on earth today as it is in heaven. One of the things I believe that God brought me to Uganda for is the story I'm about to tell you. Many of you know about the Lord's Resistance Army and Joseph Kony, a rebel leader who waged such a brutal war in Central Africa that is still happening, but on a much smaller level in the Congo. In Uganda, this is the war that brutalized. And where we were up in Lira, There was one school just on the outside of Lyra. They took almost 300 students, killed all of the teachers and adults, took those students, most of whom were never heard from again, some of whom became child soldiers. And the way you become a child soldier is the first thing you need to do is to participate in the death and killing of your own parents. If there was a baby in the house, the baby was the baby was thrown into the pounding pot they would use to pound flour, and the family was forced to pound their baby to death and then eat part of the baby. Now, in Wikipedia, you will see that somewhere around 2005-2006, the Uganda forces were successful at pushing Connie out of the country. What we learned was the real story, which you will not get in Wikipedia. <laughs> Because you see, Connie is a witch. This is the kind of stuff that in America you're going to want to dismiss right away because Satan is best in America when we don't believe in him. But in third world countries, Satan is out and in the open. Connie had powers and spells. And wherever he went, he would set up altars, which included in many places decapitated heads of his victims. Over 30,000 children in a 10-year span disappeared, most of which have never been found. Two million people were displaced by Connie. And no matter what they did, no matter how close they came to getting him, he somehow always seemed to slip away. The belief was that he could assume other identities, even animals, and just always slip away no matter how good they were. There was one body of water, one river, that Connie's forces could go back and forth at will. But the government's forces couldn't cross that river. If they touched it, they died. In fact, there were bodies in the water. 
because he had cursed the water. The president and the leaders of Uganda, knowing that it was not just a physical war, but a spiritual one, brought in witches from around the world, as far away as China, and tried to get them to conjure spells against Connie. Connie just became stronger. He absorbed their magic. And then the president and the leaders of the country of Uganda brought in key pastors and said to them, look, we're losing this war. We have identified several dozen locations where Connie has set up altars. We want to escort you to those places and have you pray over them and break the spell. These pastors climbed in the Humvees and in the big helicopters and were flown all over northern Uganda and they prayed over every one of those altars that the Spirit of Christ would break the stronghold of the works of the enemy. One pastor went to that body of water and he said, today the work of the devil will be broken in this place. Then he reached down and he grabbed the water and he began to drink it and the soldiers began screaming. And of course he survived. He then led those soldiers to Christ and he baptized them in that water. Yeah. Now, how long do you think it took from the day those pastors started praying for Connie to be defeated? How long do you think it took? That day, the war ended. That day. Connie knew he had lost his spiritual advantage. He knew his power had been broken. And so he immediately pulled out and has never come back to Uganda. Wow. So I believe God brought me to Uganda for that so I could come to this city and tell you that there are strongholds in this city that God wants to bring down if we understand the power of prayer that our weapons can take down strongholds. Our prayer can end the gang violence in this city, the bloodshed in this city, the spiritual strongholds that Satan has. Our prayers can bring down the strongholds that are holding people addicted to activities and to pornography and to drugs. We have the authority as his children. We have the weapons to bring down strongholds. <laughs> the same enemy that waged war in Uganda is waging war in our city and in our region. The same Christ that broke those strongholds is our Christ. We need to ask, believing that our Heavenly Father, who already knows what we need, will expand his kingdom. Let's do that together. Are you willing? Does it scare you? Does your skepticism get in the way of your faith? I am challenged more than ever to see God move in power in this city. I believe he can. And I believe it's when we're heart prayers, not just formal prayers. When we're in relationship with God, where his will is our will. And when we cry for his kingdom to come, I believe he'll do that. Let's not give God excuses when we pray. Let's give God permission to bless the city. Would you join me in that? 
Father, thank you for this reminder from your word. Thank you that you've called us not to pray religiously, but relationally. Not to pray in such a way that seeks man's approval or even credit with you, but to pray as a child climbs on the knee of his loving father, who he knows cares for him and approves him and loves him, and just love him back to uh, trust him for our needs and then to be a part of the family business to extend the kingdom of God. So Father, that's what we ask for. Break strongholds even in our own spirits, Father. Let your kingdom come in us and through us. Amen.